So the passage we're looking at tonight is going to chronicle the death of Sarah. As we saw in those first four verses, we see that uh, Sarah has passed away. And so there's a lot to unpack here, and we're going to do it throughout the whole of the story. However, there's another phrase in this story um, that we touched on a couple weeks ago, um, but I think we need to discuss it more fully. All right, so Genesis 23, 4 Abraham says this phrase, he says, I am an alien residing among you, all right? So here's what this means. It means Abraham is stating that he's a foreigner or that he's a stranger living in the land that he's in. So some of you have traveled to the States from other places for things like school, and so you probably feel this as you are here. You feel like a stranger or a foreigner in this land. For those of you that are from the United States, but you've traveled internationally, you've experienced this to some extent as well. I am not well-traveled. So I'll just state this. The furthest I've gone is like Mexico and Puerto Rico. <laughs> so not, not all that different, but at the same time, um, as I traveled, I experienced some of this foreignness and this strangeness in those different places that I went because they are completely different cultures. So obviously in these cultures, they speak differently than I do. I did not do well in Spanish growing up. And so trying to step into some of these different contexts, I was completely oblivious to conversations that were probably being talked about me because of how like American and white I am in a culture that is not. Um, they probably were rightfully making fun of me. Um, they also very different values, right? So you step into these cultures, there is a very deep communal rather than an individualistic like we have here in America kind of community. They love spending time with one another, very family oriented, so they spend a lot of time together. You go into these, you see large pockets of people hanging out all the time for long periods of time. We, we drive to work we drive back into our house, go into our house, sometimes without ever seeing or talking to anybody. Not how they function in these cultures. And that really played into a lot of the different rhythms that they had. So their rhythms were different there. Punctuality, where it might be more of a value here, much less so in some of those communities. You kind of show up on time knowing that you're going to spend a lot of time together. So I felt like a foreigner and stranger as I went into these various context. Abraham, as we're going to look at tonight, this would characterize most of his life. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham to leave his home country and go to the land that God would show him. And then Abraham listened to him, picked up all of his belongings, picked up all of his family, left to go to an unknown land, and then he never returned. He lived as a foreigner and a stranger. And so New Testament writers pick up on this idea that Abraham introduces to us about living as an alien or living as a foreigner or a stranger or a sojourner. And it speaks of us as those who have trusted in Christ as sojourners, foreigners, strangers, and aliens. And so tonight's story of Abraham provides us with a lot of helpful examples and pictures of what it looks like for us to live as strangers in the land that God has placed us. So we're going to unpack three that I think we see from Abraham's life tonight. 
We'll provide some application for what it looks like for us to live into this in our life, and then we'll close with a final picture of what it can look like. And here's my prayer, all right? My prayer is that as you read about this in the scriptures, and I'm going to point out some of them. One of them is, I'll do it right now. First Peter 2, verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. All right? So as we look at language like this in the Bible, here's my prayer, that you learn and we have a conviction to live more fully into the reality of sojourners and strangers in this present time. It's, it's a picture the Bible gives us of what it looks like to live with Jesus now. And I want us to be able to live more fully into it. All right. So let's start with the first one. All right. We see the first way that Abraham kind of models this for us in the first four verses of our story. So let me reread them for us and then I'll kind of unpack it for us. So here's what verse one says. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. When Abraham got up from beside his dead wife, he spoke to the Hethites, I'm an alien residing among you. Give me a burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. All right, so I want us to notice two things here. As we look at this verses that we've just read, I think there are two things that we need to recognize as Sarah has passed away. One, she's honored, and then two, she's mourned, all right? So she's honored. Let me point this out to you, all right? So Sarah is the only woman that we have in all of the scriptures that her lifespan is recorded for us. The full scope of her life, 127 years, is the only time in all of the Bible that we see a woman's full lifespan recorded in the scriptures. Enlisting her age up to this point, so there have been moments where Moses, who's the writer of Genesis, has listed off Sarah's age. The reason that he's done that is to point out how miraculous the birth of Isaac was, that she was 90 years old when Isaac was born, shows just how miraculous the work that God has done in her life. But in this instance, listing Sarah's life is a sign of honor or reverence, all right? So she's the matriarch of God's people. God is creating a whole new people through Abraham and Sarah. And so this is highlighting that she has this unique position in Scripture that literally all of God's people, like the, the whole nationality of Israel, has come from this woman. She's the sharer of God's promise that was given to Abraham. If you remember back to some of the previous stories that we've looked at, Abraham had a son with uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar. The promise didn't go with Ishmael. The promise goes with Isaac, the son that Sarah bore for Abraham. She's the sharer of God's promise, all right? So there's honor that's being shown to Sarah as she passes away here, something that we don't see throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, if I could take a Zach Morris timeout, all right, uh, let's take a time out because here's what I want to, I want you to see this, all right? Women have played a very specific and unique and purposeful role in God's work throughout human history for the redemption of man. Now, I think it's really important that we pause to take a look at this because there's been a lot of things that have happened 
in churches in the recent years where the witness of the church hasn't seemed to place much of a value or significance on women's lives. In fact, some of them have weaponized the Bible against a place for women in the life of the church. And so here's what I want us to see. I, like, I want to draw this out that we show the Bible has incredible value and weight and significance that's given on women's lives, especially in the work of what he's doing in bringing people to Jesus. So biblical fidelity, as well as the significance of women and the work that God is doing here in the world, especially through the church, they're not mutually exclusive. And it's my prayer women, as you are a part of this church, that you feel that. Like, we have very intentional, in very intentional ways, tried to help place very, women that have unique leadership skills to lead out in the life of our church. Some of our ministries, led by women. We try to have regular presence of women that are coming up and being a part of our service. We specifically try not to just have a bunch of dudes up here, all right? Like, you are needed, you're wanted, and we see it here in the scriptures, all right? So just want to bring that out for us. We'll time back in, all right? So incredible honor that's shown to Sarah here. She's also mourned, all right? So the Bible reports that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. All right, so pause to think about this relationship. They've wandered as strangers and foreigners in a land that is not of their ancestors for 60 plus years. That's a lot of adventure. (laughs) They were probably married for well over 100 plus years. That's a long time. My grandparents celebrated 50 years and I was mind blown, right? 100 plus years that they were together. So if you just stop and pause to think about them, the weight and significance of this relationship, you would, it makes Abraham feel really relatable that he would lose someone so dear to him that he goes in and he's overwhelmed by emotions, that he weeps for her. He feels the significant loss that Sarah is to him. This person that he spent so many years with is now gone. I mean, you feel this with him. He's moved by his love for Sarah, and then he begins to look for a place to bury his own wife. So here's where I want us to, like, begin to look at how this applies to us, all right? So living as a sojourner in this life, as we look at the life of Abraham, does not mean that you live a detached life, all right? A lot of people that talk about living as a sojourner or living as a foreigner— In this age and time, they use it as an excuse to detach themselves. They detach themselves from relationships as well as emotions, but that's not what we see in Abraham's life here. He self-proclaimed, I am an alien among you, but what we see here is that there is incredible relational ties as well as deep emotions that are experienced in Abraham's life. So here's, here's what I think this means. It means that we're to love well. When you think about living as strangers and exiles and foreigners and strangers here today as Christians in a place that we would not call our home, heaven is our home, this earth is not our home, we are not to live detached lives, but we love really well. 
and we look at Abraham's life and how he did this, he honored Sarah and he mourned for her, but not at the loss of hope. All right, so let me break to these two things down for us, all right? He honors her. We honor one another. If you wanna know how you love well, you honor others really well, all right? So in all the New Testament, you have these 50 one another phrases that you'll see, these different commands that we are to one another each other, all right? Most of these are talking about how we are to love one another, all right? So let me give you an example. Romans 12 Verse 10 says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. You see emotional or you see a relational attachment here, right? But look at how the end of that verse goes. Take the lead in honoring one another. Loving one another and honoring one another are bound together. Now, a lot of your translations, as you look at this verse, would actually talk about it as outdoing one another in love. It's one of the few times that Paul says competition within the life of Christ's body as the church is okay. And what he's trying to say is there is a way that you should show how valuable and significant and full of purpose and meaning each person is in this life by trying to place them and build them up rather than trying to supersede them or push them down. That's what it looks like to honor one another. That you are regularly looking for ways to build others up, to lift others up, to show their meaningfulness, their significance, and their worth rather than trying to use them to build yourself up or by putting them down in order to make yourself look better. I had a friend, um, Micah Rigdon. He was really good at this, all right? Micah had a reputation for using his words to encourage other people, and then it was as if he was constantly on a hunt to find a way to encourage you. I mean, people walked away from Micah feeling so loved and so encouraged. And you know why? Because he was incredible at showing honor. And whenever you were in the presence of uh, Micah and you left, you wanted to be like him. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, outdo one another in showing honor. You experience it by somebody else and it propels you forward to go do the same to other people. That's what it looks like for us to love well. Abraham shows incredible honor to Sarah here. We also love one another by showing each other honor. But look, you also don't live an emotionally detached life because Abraham went in to Sarah after she had passed. He mourned for her and he wept for her, but look, he didn't do it as one that was absent of hope. We, I mean, this is what it looks like for us to be sojourners here. Look, when we lose somebody in our life that is as significant as Sarah was to Abraham, our response isn't to be stoic. The way that you show that someone has meaning and honor in your life is that you weep. You feel the loss. You don't remain emotionally detached, but you embrace 
the hurt. You recognize how significant this person was and you weep. But look, you don't do it as someone that is absent of hope. Another friend that I had, her name was Rachel Wright. She was a hospice care nurse, which means that she spent a lot of time with people that were in their very last moments here in this life. And as I talked with Rachel and we were kind of talking about this, what the thing that she said to me, it, it stuck with me. She said, Josh, I've been in a lot of rooms as people have passed away. I've been in a lot of rooms where loved ones were around a deathbed and watched the one that they loved pass away from this life. And she said, you know what is striking? The difference in the room, the attitude of the room, for those that call themselves Christians and those that don't call themselves Christians is dramatically different when that person passes away. The people that don't have the hope of Christ in this life, they mourn the loss of this person in a way that is despairing. As if they will never see the person again. She said, but Josh, the people that have placed their hope in Christ, people that call themselves Christians, it's dramatically different. There's crying and there's weeping but there's also rejoicing because they know they'll see the person again. That's what it looks like for us to live as sojourners and strangers here. That we can mourn, that we can fully embrace the loss of those loved ones that are here in this life, but we don't, don't do it at the absence of hope. That we are the people that have placed Faith in Christ, knowing that this isn't our permanent home, and those people that have placed their faith in Jesus have passed away from this life, but are now in their eternal home. As Jesus is in heaven, they're there with him in heaven, and when he brings heaven back to earth, we believe there will be resurrected bodies, there will be life eternal that is experienced with God, and so we don't mourn as those without hope. You don't have to live a detached life relationally, nor do you have to live a detached life emotionally. We actually get to live fully into both. That's what you see here in Abraham. And that's what it looks like for us. We love well. We don't remain detached, but we actually press in. We build relationships, and we mourn as those with deep hope. All right? So we see that here. We show honor we mourn with hope. This is how we love well. We see that in Abraham's life. It's what it looks like for us too. Secondly, we practice godly character. We see this in verses 5 through 13. Here's what it says. The Hethites, some of your translations may say Hittites, replied to Abraham, listen to us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from your burial place for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hethites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, son of Zohar, not Zach Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah, that belongs, I practiced that, so you can give me kudos later. That belongs to him. It is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. And then Ephron steps in. Ephron was sitting among the Hethites, 
So in the hearing of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Hethite answered Abraham, No, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the sight of my people. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, Listen to me. If you please, let me pay the price of the field, accept it from me, and let me bury my dead there. So, and Abraham searched for a burial spot that we saw at the end of verse 4. He enters negotiations with the Hethites. These are it's a people group in the land of Canaan. And here's what stands out about the negotiations. Abraham's behavior. In the midst of all these details and negotiations, the thing that stood out to me this week was Abraham's behavior. And let me show this to you, all right? So as we just read, the Hethites, they hold high regard for Abraham, right? So, I mean, they mentioned him, my Lord. They called him a prince of God. They recognized God's favor on Abraham's life and the progress that God had brought about in Abraham's life, but they're playing hardball, all right? So you don't notice it in just the initial reading, but if you get in and really study and you, you like dig around in it and you kind of learn the practices and like the customs of the day, what they're doing is they're playing hardball in negotiation, all right? So when they say, bury your dead in our finest burial place and none of us will withhold from you the land or the burial spot that you want, what they're trying to do is they're trying to keep official record off of the books of giving payment and transfer of the land to Abraham because what could happen is after Abraham passes away and there's nothing that are in the books about this transaction, they can actually come back in and repossess the property. That's what's happening here. So they have a high regard for Abraham, but at the same time, they don't want to give him any of the land because they want to keep it for themselves. Abraham, again, is feeling how he is a foreigner and a stranger here. He's living in a place, he has a footprint here, but he doesn't have rights. He feels how he, how he is a foreigner and a stranger. Now pay attention to Abraham's behavior in the midst of this. What does he do? Abraham bows down. It says he actually rises up and then bows down, and he does it on multiple occasions. This is a sign of respect. Abraham also addresses the Hethites modestly. Did you notice when he's speaking to them, especially Ephron, he says, no, listen to me, please, listen to me. This is like he's speaking with a very modest tone as well as words to a people that he holds in high regard. They've spoken highly of him. They place him at the top of the ladder. Abraham, in the midst of having great, like them viewing him in a great way, is putting himself at the bottom of the ladder. He speaks to them modestly. And then Abraham does not expect special treatment. When they use the title of Prince of God, this is, that's speaking really highly. Abraham could kind of stick out his chest and try to throw his weight around a little bit, but he does not expect special treatment. In fact, he asks that he could pay the full price of the field. What is he doing? He's practicing godly character. In the midst of hardball negotiations and them trying to be manipulative here, Abraham is practicing discernment and godly character. All right, so as we are to live 
as foreigners and strangers here that this isn't our permanent home and heaven is our permanent home. The New Testament uses a lot of different passages that try to give some type of a body for what this looks like for us. One of those passages is Colossians chapter three. So the apostle Paul writes this. And as Paul tells us at the very beginning of this chapter, as followers of Jesus, he says that we are to set our minds on the things that are above as foreigners and strangers of this world, that this isn't our permanent home, we are to have our minds fixated on our permanent home, which is the heavens. And then from there, he tells us how, gives us instructions how to live in the present. So while our minds are thinking about the things of heaven, he's also giving us instructions of what it looks like to live as foreigners and strangers here in this world. And he does two things. He tells us to put off and then to put on. You put off your old citizenship. Before Jesus, you were a citizen of this world. But once you've stepped into relationship with Jesus, you're no longer a citizen of the here and now, but you're now a citizen of heaven. And in exchange, as you put off, you now put on. And what are you putting on? He gives us godly character. This is what he says in Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, Holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Look, if you go back and you look through the verses that we just read about Abraham's behavior, this is exactly what they experience. They experience godly character from Abraham. So look, As fellow sojourners, as we that have called on the name of Jesus, we are to behave as citizens of heaven and not of earth, which means we practice godly character. We follow Abraham's example here. So as Paul puts it in Colossians 3, we put off the old citizenship that we had. The way that we functioned before we came into life with Jesus The qualities of that life, which Paul lists off as sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed. Later on in the passage, he talks about that we don't lie to one another. These former ways of practice, of living, we put them off. And then what we put on in replacement of that is godly character. All right, so I love the way um, this pastor or this pastor Christian thinker, James K.A. Smith, talks about this. Um, He is a professor at Calvin uh, College, and he was addressing a graduating class, and he's using this particular passage to talk about what it looks like to live a life of faith with Jesus, and he's talking about being a sojourner or stranger. And here's what he says. He says um, he relates it to uh, learning how to change your clothes. All right? So here's what he says. First, um, we, and as we're growing up, we must learn what it means to like, take off our old clothes. All right? So um, when you're four years old, this is a really hard task. Right? I got little boys in our house. It takes forever for them to change their clothes. They cannot get their arms through the hole and then try to get it off of their head. They got big heads with small bodies. And so it's just like trying to get this thing off. It takes a really long time. But second, you must also learn how to put on the new clothes. And so a lot of times they're trying to put their head through, but it goes through the arm. 
right? Like it's just, it's madness. It's just like a chaotic whole situation. What you do when you're four and is really, really hard, when you get to 18, you can do it without thinking about it. So he's speaking to a room full of college students. He says, look, a lot of you, you came into college. You wake up 10 minutes before class starts. You get those clothes on and you still make it on time. (laughs) What happens between all of those 14 years? Practice. There's practice. The idea of putting off and then putting on is a lifetime's worth of training. You are to practice godly character now, but you must do it in the realization that it's a lifetime's work. It's not going to happen in an instant. When you step into a relationship with Jesus, you work to put things off and also simultaneously put things on, but it's going to be really hard. It's not going to be easy. Look, you have to think about Abraham's life here, right? Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham was then, and then what we experience now with Abraham in Genesis chapter 23, over 60 plus years that happens in that point in time, he did not always move forward with godly character. He did lie. He was deceitful. He had good moments that were in there, but he was distrusting. He had lots of struggles in his life. What we see presented in Abraham's life here is a lifetime's work. As sojourners and strangers, look, we do put off and we do put on, but we must do it with realistic expectations. If you expect yourself to be an entirely new person tomorrow, you're going to get frustrated. Instead, it's a lifetime's work. What you do between now and the end of your life is you practice. You recognize the patterns of your old life that are still present in your current life. You put those off and you're replaced by putting on the things that Paul has called us to. And you practice at it. And where you fail, you repent. And you turn back and you pray, and you ask for the strength of God to help you make progress in your life. And look, in 14 years, you'll see a difference. So look, as Abraham is a sojourner or stranger, he loves well. He's not a detached person. Relationally invested, emotionally invested. He also practices godly character. This is a lifetime's work of development that has happened inside of him. But lastly, we also see that we are to live by faith. All right? So we see this in verses 14 through 20. Here's what it says. Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, My Lord, listen to me. Land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Again, trying to put off. He lists a price, but he's still trying to put off. Abraham agreed with Ephron, and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed to in the hearing of the Hethites, 400 standard shekels of silver. So Ephron's field at Machpelah, near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees 
anywhere within the boundaries of the field became Abraham's possession in the sight of all the Hethites who came to the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as burial property. So what we see here is Abraham, he secures the burial property for Sarah. We see 400 shekels. This is actually an incredible amount. Very high price. 1,500 years later, we'd see that Jeremiah buys a field in the same vicinity for 17 shekels. Judas, after he has betrayed Jesus and he is broken up about it and goes and buys a field, how much does he buy it for? 30 shekels. 400 shekels, Abraham is asked for this field and he pays it in full. We also see that there's this weird part of like the inclusion of trees. What this is really doing, it's giving detailed description of the property to show that the deal was legal and ironclad. So Abraham has stepped into an agreement that cannot be refuted. We see that this field and this burial place is passed down from generations because of all the work that he does here. So he secures the land. But even more importantly, Abraham exercises great faith here. Part of the promise that God gave to Abraham was that he would receive a son. Abraham has experienced that fulfillment. But what are the other pieces? That he would be given land, that it would become his, and he would become a great nation, and his people would fill and flood this world, this, or sorry, this land. At the death of Sarah, he recognizes that this promise will not be experienced in his lifetime. There's a coming to the realization that the promise that God has given him is not for the now, but it is for the future. And so what does Abraham do? He buries Sarah in the promised land. Look, so when you had a loved one, if you were in a place that was not your ancestral land, the custom was that you would go and take that person back to the land of their ancestors and marry or bury them amongst their own people. Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham secures a burial property and then buries his beloved Sarah in the promised land. Here's what Abraham is doing. He's saying, I'm fully aware that I'm not gonna realize this part of the promise in my lifetime, but I'm planting my flag in the faith and the promise that God is going to fulfill what he's promised to me. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, I, the promises of God are gonna dictate my present actions. That's what Abraham does here. What God has promised to me, I'm gonna function in so much faith that even though I don't experience the fulfillment of it, I'm putting all of my eggs in the basket that he's gonna follow through. This is incredible faith. Here's what we need to recognize. It doesn't just stop with him. This happens with the rest of his family, all right? So Abraham, whenever he passed away, his body is taken and he's buried with Sarah in the same burial place. Same thing with Isaac, their son, and his wife, Rebekah. 
as well as Jacob and Leah, as well as Joseph. Look, all of these people fully understood that they were foreigners, that they were strangers, that they were exiles, that they would not experience the fulfillment of the promise that had been given to Abraham and Sarah. Yet, in faith, they said, we are putting all of our eggs in the basket that God is gonna come through. And instead of being buried where their ancestors resided from, they're all buried in the same place with Sarah. This is why Hebrews eleven thirteen says of these people, these all died in faith. Although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth because, look, they lived by faith. So the promises of God dictate Abraham's decisions in the present. And as we are also sojourners in this life, we are to function in the same. Like Abraham, we have experienced part of God's promise to us when we have trusted in faith in Christ. Here's what I mean. You've experienced an internal resurrection. Death to life. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus, fully resurrected. You, were, you went from a person that was completely dead in your sins to now you have full life in Christ. There's been an internal resurrection that has happened inside of you. We live with God in the present. We no longer have to travel to a temple, but what the Bible tells us and what we experience through faith with Christ is that the Holy Spirit lives with us. So we don't have to travel to a place to worship God. We are those that travel in spirit, or we worship in spirit and truth because God resides in us. But then, look, we also are the people that participate in the advancement of God's kingdom, taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, making disciples of every tribe, nation, and tongue. We are at work with God and taking the good news of Jesus to all those that have not heard the good news of Jesus so they can step into faith with Christ. We get to see the advancement of God's kingdom. That's why we celebrate baptisms like last week. That's why we pray for more because we want to see the kingdom of God continue to advance in this world. There's been a partial fulfillment But we will experience all of these and experience the full realization of them one day. And here's what we'll experience. One day we'll experience a complete resurrection. We'll be made like Jesus. We still have fallen bodies that suffer from sickness and death. One day when Jesus comes back, it won't just be an internal resurrection. We will experience full resurrection. When Jesus comes back, one day we will live with God physically for eternity. When you look at the book of Revelation, no temple. There's also no moon. There's also no sun. Why? Because God is present. Jesus, physically present, 
with his people in their fully resurrected bodies, living together for all eternity. It won't just be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We get to be in the physical presence of God. He will bring heaven to the new earth forever. And then one day we will experience the fullness of God's kingdom. We get to participate in the advancement of that kingdom, but one day, the Bible tells us, all of God's people will be there. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every language, all together with God for all eternity. So we exercise faith in this life because the one who will bring it to completion is coming back again. We look to Jesus, who, look, is the sojourner of all sojourners. What do we know about Jesus? Jesus left his rightful, eternal home to come to walk this life, travel through this fallen world, to go to the final destination of the cross where he purchased and inherited eternal glorification and the redemption of those that would place their faith and trust in him. So look, that we could live with him. That the fullness of all that God has been at work at since Genesis chapter three to the very final coming of Jesus where all of what his promises come to full realization happen, it all rests and resides on this Jesus. We see this in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Here's what it says. This is kind of bringing a lot of what we talked about together. It says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. He will transform the body. This is complete trust and faith that what has been promised will come to reality. Our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Our likeness right now is the fallenness, decrepitness of our bodies. We will get his resurrected body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So as fellow sojourners, we live by faith just like Abraham. Here's what this looks like for us, all right? What does it look like to live by faith? You pray. Look, prayer is the offensive to doubt. When you doubt, when you go through hardship, when you struggle, I don't know if God's going to follow through. Can he keep his promise? Is it going to come to come to fruition? What do you do? You pray. You go on the offensive against your doubts that God will keep his word. You go to the God that the scriptures give testimony to us that he is alive and seated at the right hand of God, that you've experienced in your own life as you've declared faith in Christ. In those hardships and those times, what do you do? You pray. You live by faith. What else do we do? You share the gospel. You share the good news of Jesus. Look, this is sharing hope. This is sharing hope with people. 
as people that live in a temporary place with their sights set on an eternal home, you know exactly what God has done in your life, which is bringing you from death to new life. You want that for other people too. So what do you do? You live by faith. You share the good news of Jesus. And as you share the good news, here's where you can have confidence that God will save some. That as you share the good news of Jesus, as you live by faith in sharing the good news of Jesus, because God is alive, some will come to faith. And then the last one, what do we do? How do we live by faith? We gather as the church. We gather as God's people. Here's what we do when we gather as God's people. We live our future. We come and we gather in the name of Jesus. Look, we wouldn't be in this room. We wouldn't be connected to each other. There's nationalities that are in here that we would not have been brought together apart from the proclamation of Jesus. We unite together in our differences because of what we hold in common, which is Jesus Christ. We lift up his name. We thank him for all that he's done for us. We believe that he is gathered here with us in this church together as God's people because he has given us the Holy Spirit. Look, this is practicing heaven. We live by faith. You come in here hungry, ready to receive God's word, needing to hear from him. You come gathering with his people, fellowshipping with one another, knowing that these are eternal investments because you will spend eternity with these people. We lift up the name of Jesus because he's our only hope. This is living by faith. So in Abraham, we get a model of what it looks like to live as foreigners, as strangers, as sojourners in a place that is not our permanent home. We love well. We practice godly character and we live by faith. Here's a final picture for you. All right, I found this comical. I, I was reading this in an article today. Here's how they related all of this. Living as a foreigner and a stranger on earth is like a camping trip. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. I hate camping, so it's very uncomfortable. It's often dirty and messy. There's no showers, right? What are you, you're out in the nature? Like you're just living in your grunge, baby, right? It's messy, but it's also temporary. It's what we see in the life of Abraham. The man never lived in anything but a tent. And it's how the New Testament characterizes our life until Christ's return as well. This is not your home. Where Jesus is, that's your forever home. So let's father, follow in our forefathers' footsteps. Let's live as sojourners, as foreigners, and strangers in a temporary place with our minds set on our eternal home.